Corey, awesome. You guys can uh, take the seats you've already taken. So uh, that was a redundant start, wasn't it? <laughs> no, that's all good. Oh yeah, kids church got to go. So uh, hey, if you've got kids, feel free to send them out to our kids church with uh, lovely teacher Hazel right here. Everyone give a hand to teacher Hazel. Amazing. So uh, just make sure to sign them in and sign them out. And we've got junior high. Yes, junior high. So uh, those of you that are 11 and upwards, feel feel free. 11 to 14, I think it is. Feel free to go on out with them. That'll be awesome. Very cool. All right. Everybody good? Yeah? Feels like a long weekend. I don't know why. Feels like a long weekend. Probably because my wife's not here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so relaxing. Yeah. <laughs> As a sarcastic, obviously, it's not relaxing at all. Did you know that she actually pre-cooked meals for me too? Amazing. Didn't ask her, she just did it. That's a Proverbs 31 woman right there. And uh, she knows that I just take the kids out to eat takeout. So she's like, no, nah, I can't have that. So it wasn't so much to help me. It was to make sure the kids stayed uh, healthy over the weekend. <laughs> anyway, let's move on. Hey, um, I am really, really excited to share what I'm going to share this morning. It's, uh, I have shared a little bit of this before. Thank you, Pastor Paul. But uh, because Pastor Peter's been going through a bit of a series uh, in the last few weeks, I trust um, most of you would have been here for part of that. And, uh, and because we've been talking a lot about the Bible, we've been doing some Zoom uh, courses over the last couple of weeks as well, talking about how amazing the Bible is and how it was inspired by God Himself. I just thought it'd be a good time to to reinforce this particular message that I want to share with you, because I want to. I just want to share a solid reminder. This is all I want to do this morning. I just want to share a solid reminder that God's word is true. It's true, and He, the Lord, is unfailingly faithful to it. 100% of the time. And, and we can have great peace in resting in the fact that God is sovereign over all things. And I know it's easy to look out there and watch the news and all the crazy stuff that's going on and feel like things are getting out of control. But there is a real peace in the fact that knowing that God is sovereign and in fact everything is under control. Nothing has taken God by surprise. Nothing has taken God kind of something he didn't see coming. And uh, in fact, the plan that he has for you is not threatened by anything that's going on in the world right now. Yeah, God's plan for your life is remaining intact. And in fact, the very reason that you are here at this time in history is by intentional design. You were born for this. You were born for this. So were your children. They were born for this. And God's prophetic plan always prevails. In fact, one of the greatest evidences we have, and we've been talking about this over Zoom, of the Bible's divine origin is its prophetic accuracy over time. In other words, the Bible's ability to predict specific events centuries beforehand with precision accuracy. Now, for that to happen, for that to be true, it shows that the knowledge contained within the biblical text had to have come from outside the time domain that you and I, mere mortals, are limited to. Does that make sense? Yeah? How else do you naturally explain the accurate fulfillment of events centuries beforehand? This is one of many reasons why we know the Bible is divinely inspired and it's come from God. But really the message, the heart of the message I want to share this morning is that God is sovereign. His word is true. 
His plans prevail. And really the best way for me to reassure you that this is true is to show you how he's done it before. And when I say how he's done it before, I'm not actually going to be pointing back just to the biblical times. I'm going to be pointing to one of the greatest miracles in modern history. In fact, an event that happened uh, in the lifetime of some of you that are here today. So, I think it's true to say that probably people don't realize how many prophetic events have happened in the last generation, in the last 50 or so years, and in our lifetime, and on the news, and you know, signs that were laid out in the Bible to let us know that the time of His coming is near. And here's the thing that when it comes to biblical prophecy is that the, the central focus of the Scriptures is, is Israel-centric. Does that make sense? The plan of redemption that God has chosen to reveal is through the nation of Israel. It's where Christ came from uh, in the sense of his ethnicity while he was a human. And the whole redemption plan, his first coming, his second coming, all of it is revealed through the geopolitical movements in the nation of Israel. Does that make sense? That makes Israel our measuring stick for understanding where we're up to in the prophetic timeline. In other words, if you want to know where we are or where we're up to, just watch Israel. Israel is center stage of this. And so understanding that helps us understand the context of all the different books in the Bible and how they're dealing with the history of that nation. They're dealing with the future of that nation, God's uh, plans of, of the times that he scolded them, the times that he blessed them. And uh, this morning, you're going to see me jump between all the various books of the prophets here to uh, deal with the story of Israel and ultimately the church. And uh, it's all going to be focused around that. Does that make sense? Yeah? Right. So, essentially what I'm going to do is show you, as best as I can in the time I've got, um, all of the prophecies that have been fulfilled since Jesus left until now. Is that, is that all right? I want you to have confidence that God's word is true and that everything is going to plan. So I think we can rest and have peace in that. That's the point. So let's just quickly set the scene by starting back when Jesus was on the planet. Let's start in Matthew 24. And of course, uh, many of you know that when Jesus was on the planet, uh, Israel was under Roman occupation, right? And that itself was a prophecy that had been fulfilled, something that was written in Daniel 2, 600 years earlier. And of course, for those of you that know the history, you know that Rome had conquered the entire region at that point. And, uh, and because of the, the Jewish uprisings, because of course the Jewish people weren't happy with the fact that they were, had a sovereign nation over them, uh, there was uprisings, there was violent protests, and uh, at the time where Jesus was on the earth, politically speaking, it was a tense time between Israel and Rome. Israel was a real thorn in their side. Their patience was wearing thin with these people. And in Matthew 24, Jesus is in the temple grounds, right? There's a whole kind of complex to it. And they were talking about the various temple buildings right there and then. And he said to his disciples this. He says, do you see all these things? Truly, I tell you, not one stone will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And he goes on to mention other signs of the times of the end, but he finishes that exchange by saying in verse 34, and you've heard Pastor Peter say it recently also, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. Right? Now, one time frame that the Bible uses for a generation is 40 years. There's other time frames as well. 40 years is one of them. It's why there were 40 years in the desert until the old generation had died. 
And it's interesting to note that since Jesus exchanged there at the temple, which happened in 32 AD, that not one stone would be left upon another, that was fulfilled exactly as he said it, 38 years later, just two years short of a generation, in 70 AD. Because history tells us that on the 30th of August, 70 AD, the Romans invaded Jerusalem, they sacked the temple, they burned it to the ground, and records tell us that after burning it, the Roman army was, was commanded to remove every single stone from its place, and even the foundations of the temple were dug up in order to find all the temple treasure and the gold that had been hidden uh, by the priests and all the artifacts to take them away because their, their intention was to make sure that the religious identity of the Jews could not be restored. They were trying to wipe their whole identity off the face of the planet. And in this famous Roman siege of Jerusalem, over 1.1 million Jews died. Hundreds of thousands of others fled or were sold into slavery. And the Romans took the Jews to all the different countries uh, throughout modern-day Europe that they had over their empire and scattered them across the world. And interestingly, early church records actually indicate that no Christians died in this siege, which is really interesting. And I think, you know, you have to ask the question, why? And I think... The answer is because Christians, the early church, took Jesus at his word. It's almost as though listening to what he said about the times, the times you're in helps you to understand what to do. And uh, let me read to you from Luke 21, because he specifically told them. He says, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you'll know its desolation is near. And that's fairly self-evident, right? If, you, if your house was surrounded by an army... Yeah? Things are about to get, yeah. Then let those who are in Judea, so is he talking about the whole world? Talking about Judea. Flee to the mountains, let those in the city get out, and let those in the country not enter the city, because this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. And how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in all the land and wrath against this people. They'll fall by the sword or be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles, the non-Jews, until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, we see from early church records that the, the Christians, the early church, took Jesus at his word, and most of them fled to Jordan, right, before this happened. And it's interesting because we see in the book of Acts talking about, you know, the Christians selling up their houses and giving away all their possessions and things like that. And not that I'm wanting to take away from the generous culture of the early church, but we see this happening in Jerusalem only. Right, Because they knew what was coming. Because Jesus told them. And they listened to his word, and they sold everything up, and away they went. So Jesus said they'd be taken away as prisoners to all the nations. Now, by the way, this hadn't happened before in all of Israel's history. They'd been taken captive twice at this point by the Assyrians and by the Babylonians. But they'd never been scattered across all the nations of the world. So the question is, why did Jerusalem get sacked by the Romans? Like, why did this happen? Because Jesus mentioned that it's the time of the punishment and fulfillment of all that had been written. So the question is, what had been written? So let's jump back to Daniel chapter 9, and we're going to read in verse 25. Now remember, Daniel was written 500 years before Christ, and Daniel is writing this from Babylon when they're in exile. Let me read to you this. He says, Know therefore and understand from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, 
There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And verse 26 goes on to say, And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, which is a, an idiom for death, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who, who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So Daniel here is saying that at some point, remember he's sitting there in Babylon still in captivity. He's saying at some point a command is going to come to go back to Jerusalem and restore it. And the time between that announcement and the time Messiah comes is seven weeks and 62 weeks, right? And then the Messiah is going to be cut off, killed. And after that, the temple in the city is going to be destroyed. Now, just for your knowledge there, the word for week is Shabua, which literally just means period of seven. And it's most often used in Scripture for a period of seven years. All right? So it's, it's a week of years is kind of the way they phrased that. Now, are you up for some, some maths this morning? Yeah? I'm taking this somewhere. I'm not a huge fan of maths myself, but uh, thank God for Excel spreadsheets because you can work all this stuff out. So it's referring to seven times seven and seven times 62 years, right? Now, it's helpful to know that both Babylonian and Jewish calendars are 360-day years, all right, because they follow a lunar calendar. Now, that time frame equals 173,880 days, or in our calendar terms, 476 years and 27 days. Now, in relation to the command to go forth and rebuild Jerusalem, and you can read about this in Nehemiah, history records that that edict was given by the Persian king Artaxerxes, March 14th, 445 BC. And if we take 173,880 days and add it to that date, you arrive at April 6, 32 AD. Now, April 6, 32 AD is the time that history records the day Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey to declare himself as king. On the exact day that Daniel had prophesied. And it's interesting to note that Zechariah had also prophesied this event, specifically saying he'd do so on a donkey. And it's interesting to note that during Jesus' ministry, you can read about it in the Gospels, there was quite a few times where his disciples tried to push him into, you know, come on, take your kingdom, take over the Romans. He goes, no, my time has not yet come. And yet on this day, April 6, 32 AD, his time had come. The day had come. And he was proclaimed as king. He did it that day. Why? Because it was written. Because it was written. And I want you to have confidence in what is written. Right? Remember, Daniel was written 500 years prior, fulfilled to the day. But the Jews, they didn't see it coming when they should have. In fact, Jesus specifically said that their failure to recognize that day was the final straw. They'd been killing the prophets, and now they were going to kill the Son of God, was the reason that Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. And in Luke 19, you can hear the heart of Jesus here in verse 41. It says, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. I think that's a good word for today, isn't it? If only you knew what would bring you peace. Him. But now, he says, now it is hidden from your eyes. In other words, it's too late. The days will come upon you where your enemies will build an embankment against you and circle you in and hem you in on every side. Now, Roman records show that's exactly what the Romans did. They surrounded them. 
They'll dash you to the ground. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus held them strictly accountable for not recognizing the time. Yeah? Of course, what was he foretelling? Roman siege of Jerusalem. Not one stone would be left upon another. And Micah, chapter 3, verse 7, again, this is written 700 years prior. It says, Therefore, because of you, Zion, which is Jerusalem, will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, and the temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. Now, remember, when this was spoken, the temple was all up and running and everything was good. But you see, there's going to come a point where it's going to be plowed like a field. And it's really interesting because Jewish records, Josephus, the historical writer, shows that the Romans ran a plow over the temple mount, right over the area of the temple. And there was even a coin minted, because what the Romans would do when they took over a territory, they'd mint a, a coin in commemoration of their victory. And that coin shows a man pushing a plow over their, their, their taking over of Jerusalem. And uh, so again, prophecy fulfilled in literal detail. Details matter in the word. So on that tragic day, 70 AD, the Jews were expelled from their promised land, right? And here's what the Bible said would happen after that. Deuteronomy 28 says, The Lord will scatter you among the peoples from one end of the earth to the other. Ezekiel 22.15, I will scatter you among the nations and disperse you throughout all the countries. Leviticus 26.33, I'll scatter you among the nations, draw out a sword after you, and your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Right, So we have numerous witnesses to this in the Scriptures. Deuteronomy 28 tells us what would happen when they're in those countries because it says, There among those nations you will find no peace or place to rest. Now many of you who know even your modern history would know that the Jews have been persecuted in every nation they've gone to, except for the United States really. It's a whole other story. And uh, of course, we're all familiar with how modern history has played out for the Jewish people, right? With uh, World War II and everything. So... Obviously, don't need to go into detail on that. But listen to this. Deuteronomy 29. This is really interesting. Again, just the, just the precision of God's word is amazing to me. Verse 21. The Lord would separate him from all the tribes of Israel according to the curses of the covenant that are written in the book of the law so that the coming generation who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a far land would say... When they see the plagues of that land and the sickness which the Lord has laid on it, this whole land is brimstone, salt burning. It's not sown, nor does it bear, nor does any grass grow there. So really interesting is prophesied that during the time of their international exile, which only ended recently, as you know, a foreigner, this is a singular word, not plural. This is not just general tourists. This is a specific foreigner would come from a far land. And when he saw the state of that place would say how clearly wretched the place was. Now, has anyone ever heard of Mark Twain? Yeah? He's a fairly famous author and an avowed atheist. He hated God. And in 1867, I'm going to come back to why that year is important, he took a, a tour through the whole area and documented his journey. And in 2017, a doco on Amazon Prime came out called uh, Dreamland, Mark Twain's uh, Travels to Jerusalem. And it it, it produced and it retraces this journey and it documents all the things that he said. And one of his quotes when he was in Israel was this. He said, Palestine six sits in sackcloth and ashes. The spell of a curse that has withered its fields and fettered its energies. 
Palestine is desolate and unlovely. It is a hopeless, dreary, heartbroken land. I think it's amazing because I believe Moses, who wrote Deuteronomy, uh, saw exactly this ahead of time and wrote about it. You know, the foreigner who comes from a far land. And the year that this happened is, is important. I'm going to come back to that later on. I just love how specific the Bible is. We read over things and we're like, oh, yeah, that's some random detail. No details are random. Everything, every jot and tittle is, is intentional. Anyway, so that's how the land of Israel was for almost 2,000 years, right? Exactly as the Old Testament prophets described. And during this time, there didn't appear to be any hope for God's people. I mean, can you imagine after that long, that amount of time in history? And of course, it created a problem for lots of end time scholars because most of the end times prophecies are predicated on Israel being back in their land again. None of the end times prophecies could really start to happen unless they were back in their land. It all was predicated on that and the conditions that preceded Christ's second coming. And so because it looked so hopeless, though, because they'd been out of their land for centuries, they started to say, oh, well, maybe all these things relating to Israel are metaphorical. Maybe they're just kind of, you know, they're not really literal. And I think sometimes we try to take our own filter and try and dumb down the scriptures, but let's not change what God's word says, right? And, uh, but who knows that, you know, God is a God of covenant. He's a faithful God. And they may have been exiled, but they were not destroyed. In fact, in Leviticus 26, it says this, In spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them or abhor them to destroy them completely, breaking my covenant with them, because I am the Lord their God. Isaiah 49, But Zion has said, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. But can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will never forget you. I love verse 16. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Wow. Talk about messianic imagery. Your walls, he says, are ever before me. Jeremiah 32. Surely I will gather them from the lands where I banished them in my furious anger and great wrath. I will bring them back to this place so that they can live in safety. They will be my people and I will be their God. Ezekiel 34, again written 570 BC, I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel and the ravines and in all the settlements. Amos 9, I will bring my people back from exile. They'll rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They'll plant vineyards and drink their wine. They'll make gardens and eat their fruit. I'll plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them. And last of all, probably the most famous prophecy of all, Ezekiel 37, the Valley of Dry Bones. He said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know I am the Lord when I open up your graves and bring you up from them. I'll put my spirit in you. You will live and you will settle in your own land. This is not metaphorical language. You will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I, the Lord, have done it. What the Lord speaks, he does. What is written matters. Now, here's where it gets real interesting. Is this making sense so far? Yeah, trucking along. A little bit more mass to come. Daniel 4, 
and Ezekiel 4 both say that Israel will be established on the predicted date, or in other words, the appointed time. Question and question is, what date was that? Now, just a little bit of a side thing here. When we look at the book of Ezekiel, it's a very unusual book, uh, unusual story of a prophet here. And we see that through the prophet Ezekiel, God is revealing to him the details of Israel's judgment for their constant turning away from him. And as part of this, God said that Israel will be judged for a total of 430 years. There's a reason for that number, we don't have time. Now, as part of the Babylonian exile, which was their only other time of exile, 70 of those 430 years were fulfilled, right? That left 360 years to go. Does that make sense? But when you look at Israel's history from their beginning until now, a 360-year period doesn't seem to fit anywhere. There's no period for which they're away for 360 years. It doesn't fit any other period in history. Unless you look at Leviticus 26, 28, where God says, If you will not hearken unto me for all of this, in other words, repent while you're in judgment, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. You know the New Testament says, Behold the goodness and the severity of God. It's a healthy thing to love him and fear him. Yeah, a good healthy fear. Not one that makes you run from him, but one that makes you run to him. I will punish you seven times more for your sins. Now, just for historical background here, when the Jews could go back to Israel after being in Babylon, uh, a lot of them stayed. They'd been there for 70 years. Some of them had only known Babylon and the comfortable lifestyle and the other gods that were served there. And the idea of going back and building God's house was too much work. They'd prefer to stay in comfort. Yeah? Does that ring true for Christians today? Sometimes building God's house is just too much effort. I'd rather stay in comfort, rather do my own thing. Anyway, God wasn't happy with that. So God said he would multiply their judgment by seven times. And it appears that God did do this, multiplying the remaining 360 years by seven. Now again, that gives us a number of 2,520 years. Let me just put this into days for you because the Jewish years are 360 days. 2,520 Jewish years is 907,200 days, which when you translate that into our calendar and factoring in the leap years and adding a year because there is no year zero, you have 2,483 years, nine months, 21 days. That was the remaining time of their judgment. Now, The siege of Nebuchadnezzar began in 606 BC and lasted until the summer of 537 BC where the the first 70 years ended. So if we work from the date of the 23rd of July, 537 BC, and we apply God's remaining time of judgment that he said he'd put on the nation of Israel, 2,483 years, 9 months, 21 days, applying that time frame to the date that the siege of Nebuchadnezzar ended, brings you to the date of May 14th, 1948, which some of you might recognize as the exact date that Israel became a nation again in the lifetime of some of you sitting here. God's word, what is written, matters. Yeah? He's faithful to his people. He's faithful to his word. This is one of the greatest miracles of history. It's incredible. But 
We're not, we're not done yet. The specifics carry on. I mean, I just think it's amazing how sovereign God is. I mean, with all the moving parts, if God can do that, then think what he can do for you in your life. If God can do that with all those moving parts and the challenges that came with trying to get a nation born on a, on a specific day in modern history, then even with our insecurities and limitations and all the things and the excuses we make for why God can't use us, not valid. <laughs> God is sovereign. If you submit your life, surrender your life to him, he'll do it. His plan prevails. Come on now. You're quiet. Right. Should we carry on? Yeah, got a few more minutes in you. Let's read in Isaiah 11. I love this. This is cool. Isaiah 11, verse 11. Came to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people from Egypt and Assyria and all the places, from the islands of the sea, right? So he's talking about all the international countries. He shall set up a sign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. This was to be a sign to all the nations and it happened on a single day. Now, we know from history that as the result of wars and conflicts that boundaries can change, right? We've, we've had that in modern history. But Israel never formed as the result of a war. In fact, the formation of Israel caused some wars, which we'll get to in a moment. But it wasn't directly caused by a war. It followed World War II. But this was a people who hadn't had a homeland for over two millennia. Suddenly, in one day, their nation is restored. And it happened to be on the exact day that the Bible said it would. Can you name any other ancient group to whom that's happened? Chances are... Now, I don't have time to go into the political circumstances that surrounded it, but you can look it up. Um, anyway. On, on May, 19th, uh, May 14th, 1948, the British mandate expired. Israel declared their independence. It was immediately recognized by the United States literally born on a single day. And Isaiah 66 said, Who has ever seen anything as strange as this? Who has ever heard of such a thing? Has a nation ever been born on a single day? Has a country ever come forth in a mere moment? Amazing. What a great day that was. In fact, you can read at the time the writings of end time scholars who were watching this happen, realizing they were living in times where Biblical prophecy was literally being fulfilled before their very eyes. They were watching it happen on the news. Now, I believe we're in similar times, but I'll come to that. But this was just the beginning. Because Isaiah describes, listen to this, how Israel's labor pains started after she birthed. How many of you all know that labor pains usually come before you give birth? <laughs> Not speaking from experience, obviously. I've been a, but I have been a first-hand witness four times. And I can tell you that every single time, labor pains happen first. Right? But this is interesting because Isaiah 66 7 says, Before she goes into labor, she gives birth. That's unusual. Before the pains come upon her, she delivers a son. What's it talking about? Then that's why it goes on to that verse. Who has ever heard of such a thing as a nation ever been born in a day? This is what it's talking about. Yet no sooner is Zion in labor than she gives birth to her children. No sooner, because here's what happened within hours, within hours of Israel declaring independence in 1948. She was attacked by Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia within hours. Talk about birthing pains after you birthed. And Jeremiah said, when they gather as a nation, 
that God would watch over them like a shepherd and they'd have supernatural power to prevail during conflict. So hours after this nation was formed, the surrounding nations attacked Israel by a total miracle. You can read about it. They defeated their enemies. They captured 50% more land, which they've since given back. But Israel also prevailed in the two other wars that followed. This is a fledgling nation. Israel had disproportionate power for their numbers. And believe it or not, that was prophesied too. Let me carry on. Leviticus 26. You will chase your enemies. They shall fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred. And a hundred of you shall put 10,000 to flight. Now we think that's cute metaphor. No, it's not cute metaphor. Five to a hundred. Twenty to one. It's interesting to note that the combined population of those attacking countries at that time was over 20 million. And Israel was sitting at one. 20 to 1. I tell you, details matter. There was a series of wars that followed, uh, but the most significant of that was the Six-Day War of 1967, and you can read amazing stories of this war. Supernatural events took place. I love it. Um, But isn't it interesting? A six-day war. They worked for six days, and on the seventh, they rested. Man, if God's fingerprints aren't over that, I don't know what is, right? So the Six-Day War of 1967 saw them take Jerusalem, and Isaiah 27:13 tells us this, and you can see a photo of it, I believe, that in that day a great horn will be blown. Those who are dying in the land of Assyria and when everywhere throughout the land will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain in Israel. See that horn? It's a shofar. It blew on that day, just as Isaiah 27 said. In fact, this guy, the rabbi holding the horn, so actually the other guy's holding the horn, the rabbi's holding the book, the, the Torah, but he, uh, his name is Rabbi Goren, which means horn. That's cool. Something else interesting here. In Isaiah 31, says the Lord will defend the mountains of Israel like a lion and a young lion. It's a weird way to, it's a weird phrase to use, like a, like a lion and a young lion. But if you look at the first two soldiers into the city, Colonel Matagoa and Arik Akman, and you look at the meaning of their names, one of them means lion and the other means young lion. Amazing. Details matter. God is faithful. Come on. Anyway, before I run out of time, there's a few others. I've got a bit of a list of uh, specific prophecies relating to Israel that we can read about up here. How Israel will come back as one nation, not two. That British ships will be the first to bring the people of Israel home. It doesn't say British in the scriptures, of course. It says Tarshish, but you do the math. The revised state will be named Israel. The Star of David would be on the Israeli flag. I mean, there's a whole list. Arab nations wouldn't recognize them. Fortunes would be restored. It wouldn't be restored as a monarchy. Remember, it's a democracy now. Israel will be reestablished by a leader named David. We know that their first prime minister was David Ben-Gurion. They're going to have a fierce military. Hebrew language would be revived. The desolate land and cities would be restored. The cedar forests would appear in Israel. The deserts will bloom. Come on. God's using specific signs to the nations here. And for us to be assured that he is true to his word, that Yemenite Jews will return. Isaiah talked about this. That happened in 1949. The cedar forests first happened in 1956. Israel will gain control of Ashkelon. That happened in another war in 1951. Israel will be initially restored without Jerusalem. Right? That happened in 48. It wasn't until 67 they got Jerusalem back. It says Jerusalem will be divided. It is. Jordan will give up the West Bank. We saw that happen in 1967. Israel will gain control of Ashdod. That happened in 68. Yom Kippur War. There's a whole list. There's a whole list. 
I don't have time to go into all of them. But we can go right up to 2005, and I was going to update it because there's been a whole bunch of things recently. Ran out of time. That's what happens when your wife leaves you for the weekend, day. Eh? But uh, <laughs> you can blame it on her. But um, it would take a whole other session to go through the ones since here. Maybe we should do it. But um, yeah, all sorts of stuff. Tourists would come. Sanhedrin will be reestablished. That happened in 2004. Uh, Palestinians will attempt to get Jerusalem as their capital. It happened in 2005. By the way, the Palestinian thing's interesting, isn't it? Because, of course, we've just had a recent spat with the Palestinians. And, you know, I think as Christians, we can be guilty of just purely looking at the political aspect and not realizing there's a divine right to the land involved here, which, of course, the world's not going to relate to. But this is something that uh, the Bible tells us. It's interesting because the two areas that are under dispute, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, are the same two areas that Joshua failed to conquer when he was talking about the conquest of of Canaan. He didn't drive them out like God told him to. And the same area from which Goliath taunted the people of Israel is the same area today that they're getting rockets fired at them. The intergenerational consequence of not listening to the Lord... (laughs) <laughs> Come on. I think it's interesting. Is God good with his word? Is he true to his word? Come on. Now, one last. I've got five more minutes, so just one last. you got five more minutes in you? Yeah. Just one last thing. It, who's ever heard of the Jubilee year? Jubilee. Yeah, every 50 years. I don't have time to go into it in huge detail, but essentially... Every, every seventh day was the Sabbath, right? Every seventh year was Shemitah, and every seventh, seventh, 49th year, the 50th was Jubilee. Now, in Jubilee, it was a huge celebration. It was a whole year worth of celebration. And in the year of Jubilee, the uh, debts were forgiven, and the land would go back to its rightful tribal inheritance. So obviously, transactions would happen. Land could be bought and sold. But on the 50th year, every 50 years, land would go back to its rightful owner. Because who knows that God allocated them the different areas, the different tribes of Israel. So the Jubilee year is very much associated to the people being back in their rightful land. Does that make sense? Excuse me. Now, remember I said before how Mark Twain visited Jerusalem. And I believe that was a fulfillment of Deuteronomy. Because it matched that description perfectly. A stranger coming from a far land. Now, unbeknownst to Mark Twain... He did this in 1867, and 1867 was a jubilee year. And it was the first sign, if you like, of the beginning of the restoration of Israel to their land because it was fulfillment of Deuteronomy. Now, fast forward to the next jubilee year from 1867, and where do we get to? 1917, right? What happened in 1917? This is when the Balfour Declaration occurred. This is when they, the British said, hey, the Jews are going to get their land back didn't happen then, but the big declaration came out because obviously Britain controlled the area. And they said, when our control finishes, they're going to get the land back. So it was signed here, 1917. Let's fast forward another 50 years to the next Jubilee year. What year do we come to? 67. What happened in 67? They retook Jerusalem. Six-day war. You see a common theme here, that God is bringing people back to his land. That's cool. That was a Jubilee year. Fast forward another 50. What do we come to? 2017. What happened in 2017? Donald Trump officially recognizes Jerusalem as the eternal capital of Israel. Now, why does it matter if some foreign guy recognizes them as their capital? Well, it's interesting because... Oh, 
only got two minutes. Nah. But look, maybe we'll have to do another session on this, but Trump was fulfilling another thing going on, uh, a template of King Cyrus. King Cyrus also signed a declaration to let them go back to their land, and uh, Trump really fulfilled the role of Cyrus in modern times, right on the Jubilee year. Interesting. And it was 70 years to the day uh, since they became a nation again. So not only did Trump fulfill the Jubilee pattern, remember how it's interesting that names matter, like Rabbi Gorain with the horn and the lion and the young lion. You know, the Bible talks about the last Trump. <laughs> I'm just... I'm just saying, I don't know if all these things are accidents. You don't know. You don't know. Anyway, let me finish with this. This is what Pastor Peter was talking about. Remember how Jesus cursed the fig tree in Mark 11 and it died? If you read about that, you're like, man, what a random act of violence. Just cursed the fig tree. This was a picture of what was going to happen to Israel, because Israel was the fig tree, right? Or is the fig tree. And uh, by the way, isn't it interesting that when Adam and Eve decided to cover themselves, it was with fig leaves. So it's like a throw forward to the law, you know, trying to cover with the law, but the law was never going to be enough, you know, that God had to sacrifice. Come on. Anyway, it's all intentional. Now, uh, where are we? So the fig tree is Israel, because all throughout the Bible, God uses things in nature to represent other things, right? It says we're clay. It says he's the rock. Like He just uses pictures to, to talk about things, and he's consistent with those throughout Scripture. So Israel is the fig tree. And when he cursed the fig tree and it died, it was a picture for what was going to come to Israel. Now, let's read in what Matthew, uh, Mark says, uh, Jesus said in Mark, chapter 13, verse 28. He says, now learn the lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, in other words, regather on the tree, you know that summer is near. And even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. What Pastor Peter's been talking about, and hopefully it makes a little bit more sense now with a bit of background, is even though I believe the fig tree generation applied to the first generation, because we saw it happen in the first generation, I also believe that scripture and prophecy is multi-layered, and it would also apply to the modern day fig tree generation. This is why Pastor Peter's been talking about, hey, those who've been around in the generation since Israel reformed as a nation is also the fig tree generation. And this is what, is that making more sense now? This is the whole fig tree thing he's been talking about. That's, that's why he's saying it. And uh, so anyway, all of that to say, if God can do that with that many moving pieces, what can he do with you? If he can be that true to his word, that specifically, that on time, then what can he do in your life if you surrender to him? Listen, if you're here and you don't know him, I want you to know that if the Bible was right about all of that, then the chances are the Bible is also right about what it says about Jesus. Come on. If it was right about all of that, then we better pay attention to what the Bible says about who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. Because he's true to his word and the details matter. And here's the detail that matters. All of us, you, me, everybody, is born into a state of sin. The Bible says all men have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible also says that the wages of that sin or the consequence of that sin is death. Separation from God. That is the just response 
of a perfect judge towards the issue of sin. He can't pretend it's not there. He can't sweep it under the carpet. It has to be dealt with. And the only appropriate just response is death. That is the penalty that is warranted for sin. So God's justice demands that. But here's the good news. God's love didn't want that death to be ours. He didn't want that to be our death, my death, your death, even though we deserved that in the sense of we were the ones that were guilty. We've all broken God's law. The Bible says no one is righteous. No, not one before we know the Lord, right? But the great news is, is that it's, the Bible talks about how when he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, that he became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And if the Bible is right about all that relating to Israel, then I'll guarantee you it's right about that too, about, about righteousness and God's all-atoning sacrifice. Yeah? Come on. So if you don't know him this morning, we're going to have an invitation for you to come to know him. So we're going to actually show a clip shortly, so I'm not, we won't do the whole worship theme. But perhaps we could all bow our heads, just close our eyes, just to give everyone a moment of privacy, because this is decision time. You know, Jesus posed a question to his disciples and he said, who do you say that I am? 